The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How about yourself? Doing well, Father. Good Great to be here. Good to see you. Have a lot of great topics tonight, Father, but I know first you wanted to ask for some prayers, I believe. Yes, I'd ask everyone to pray for Father Paul Baumberger. Father Baumberger has been ill of late in Montana and uh, has pneumonia and we have, and a blood clot, actually, in the lung, a pulmonary embolism. So uh, please um, ask everyone to, uh, I ask everyone to pray for him and ask those to ask others to pray for him, too. And um, also the members of his family. And I do ask prayer, prayers for Mr. Louis Saint-Laurent. Mr. Les Saint-Laurent, a long, long-time traditional Catholic, I understand, is now ill. So uh, please keep him in your prayers as well, and his family also. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for that. I should remind you also of the, uh, of the open house at Immaculate Conception Academy this coming Thursday night, beginning at about 6, six o'clock in the evening. Could be a, a great affair, so I, I'd like to see people there. Invite everyone to come. Um, also, we have the ladies' retreat coming up in uh, mid June, right? And the men's retreat coming a week later, and uh, that's uh, the men's retreat starts on the twenty third. And uh, we also have the children's camps coming up for July. So uh, all of these things are. Uh, very uh, great events, you know, the tremendous spiritual opportunities for those to take part. So I encourage people to uh, to come along and join us for those events. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, uh, Father, for some emails, we had a couple uh, related questions concerning the Book of Destiny by Father Kramer, which has been a very mm. popular topic on the show recently. Uh, but one viewer in particular said he's been reading the book, finds it very interesting. Um, Father Kramer references the, be the beast out of the earth. Uh, he talks about the false prophet. And uh, this viewer says a lot of what is discussed sounds like Francis. So what does Father Jenkins think about the false prophet? And could uh, the current Francis, the Pope of the Novus Ordo, could he be this horrific person? Well, as I have said in previous programs, I think it's possible. Uh, certainly, I also see the uh, similarity or the parallels between what is said of the false prophet, the second beast. This is in uh, the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 13, verse 11. We read of the second beast, right? Also known as the false prophet. Uh, as mentioned um, several times in the course of the Apocalypse, uh, the chapter uh, 13, verse 11 is the first mention of him. And certainly we do see things uh, concerning Francis that uh, would make us think that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy 
of the second beast. But uh, the second beast comes out of the earth, right? And, uh, well, could, we could read that. Um, in fact, perhaps we should for those who are not very familiar with it. So uh, let's, let's do that for the sake of uh, clarity here. It says here uh, in chapter 13, verse 11, And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he executed all the power of the former beast in his sight. And he caused the earth and them that dwell therein to adore the first beast, whose wound to death was healed. And he did great signs, so that he made also fire to come down from heaven unto the earth and in the sight of men. And he seduced them that dwell on the earth for the signs which were given him to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make the image of the beast which had the wound by the sword and lived. And it was given him to give life to the image of the beast, and that the image of the beast should speak and should cause that whosoever will not adore the image of the beast should be slain. Now, uh, and here it continues, and he shall make all, both little and great, rich and poor, freemen and bondmen, to have a character in their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, but he that hath the character or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom, he that understanding, he that hath understanding, let him count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and the number of him is 666. So this is the, the little beast, the second beast they refer to, the false prophet. You know, as far as the question of whether this is Francis, there are some things that are, certainly apply to him. He's made the Vatican a, a, a veritable hub for all of the worldly anti-Christian movements. I mean, uh, the population control uh, crowd is meeting at the Vatican regularly. Uh, all of the worldlings, basically, who defy Christ and the way they live, the pro-abortionists and so on, have found a haven in, uh, in the Vatican in, in its uh, uh, commission on culture and uh, its, uh, even the Pontifical Academy of Sciences you know, calls together these individuals to have big powwows in the Vatican to discuss all of these things that are completely anti-Christian, anti-Christ, and Francis presides over these things. This shouldn't be a surprise for those who have been paying any attention because, after all, when you have pagan worship going on in the Vatican and you uh, have an idol of the Mother Earth Goddess uh, on display there and receiving worship right there in St. Peter's Basilica, as Francis has done, you realize that nothing is impossible. There. There's no evil, there's no degradation. Uh, there is no apostasy, uh, no level of apostasy, apostasy which is beyond him. Um, when you see him receiving the, uh, the wishes staying and carrying it in the first liturgy of the World Youth Day, and um, he's receiving it from a, uh, a teenage girl or a young lady who is wearing the red uh, bracelet of the Kabbalah, the, the, the Jewish Kabbalah, I mean, you realize the occult has taken over. You know, Francis is very deeply into the occult. He manifested by so many signs. 
And uh, so, you know, there there's reason to believe that he might be this uh, false prophet. The more I've thought about it, the more I think, though, and I've heard this recently from from uh, some other wise individuals, that he is uh, certainly a, a uh, setting the stage for the false prophet um, and the second beast, that he is the second beast, that he is the false prophet. I find it less and less likely. And the reason why I find it less likely and why others also have voiced that to me is because well, I, I know this, this sounds terrible to say, but he lacks the gravitas. Some would even say he, he, he uh, indulges in buffoonery. Um, and to use the word buffoon seems rather um, disrespectful, uh, certainly. But the problem is that he does indulge in buffoonery, and that is disrespectful. But it's not disrespectful for me to say it. It's disrespectful for him to do it. But it shows his contempt for the papacy that he at least represents to the world, right? That's the problem. And uh, so when the Antichrist comes, um, when the, uh, the, the dragon manifests himself, you know, and, and, and chooses his his Antichrist, um, I don't think that they are going to be um, showing buffoonery. I think they're going to draw the respect of the human race to them. Um, so I don't, don't think they're going to come as kind of a comedy team. Um, I think the entire world is going to show such, such reverence toward the Antichrist, toward the, 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 the beasts, that um, it would be unthinkable to, to make fun of them. It would even be a crime to mock them. You know, Father Kramer, and let's face it, Father Kramer's book of destiny, the book of destiny, is a commentary. It's his commentary. He makes no claim that it is infallible in any way. Um, he tries to rely as much as possible on approved sources of the church, um, the fathers of the church and, and others who are recognized as really authorities in commenting on the sacred scripture. <clears throat> he has an interesting chapter on this question, though, uh, from chapter 13, verse 11. This is what he has to say, and I think it's worth uh, reading over in response to this question. Uh, commenting on, on the um, uh, book of the Apocalypse, some call it the book of Revelation, or Revelations, uh, chapter 13, verse 11, which we just read. He says, In the vision of the seer, that's St. John the Apostle, now appears a second beast rising out of the earth, having two horns like a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. This beast is the prophet of Antichrist. In other places, he is called the false prophet. And we're referred here to Apocalypse chapter 16, verse, verse 13, Apocalypse uh, chapter 19, verse 20. They also refer to the, this false prophet. Antichrist will have a forerunner or prophet who will prepare the way for him. It will undoubtedly be someone who has done great work of evil in the world 
so as to be especially fitted for the position. Many may have developed so evil a character as to be fit for such a job, but this one may be at the head of a strong world power. Satan will not know long beforehand the time of these events. It's kind of an interesting statement by Kramer. In another place, he even mentions Satan would not really know even when his Antichrist will be permitted, but uh, only when God allows it. Satan cannot himself know when it will be possible for him to do this. But Satan will not know long beforehand the time of these events, as he will not know when he shall be cast out of the church. Interesting, right? So, choosing the false prophet will be the work of the Antichrist himself after he has made his own pact with Satan. This prophet may reestablish the pagan Roman Empire and build the great harlot of Babylon. He comes out of the earth, which is the term for the Gentile nations from which he springs. He is briefly described. He has two horns. The Antichrist has ten horns. These two horns might stand for two kings subject to him. If the phrase, like a lamb, were not added, that gives the horns a different significance. He may have two world powers subject to himself, but the added phrase seems to intimate that he is an apostate bishop or cardinal, or he resembles one. The church, having fled from Rome after the murder of the Pope, leaves the papal chair vacant. This false prophet, possibly at the behest of Antichrist, usurps the papal supremacy and proposes himself as emperor of Rome. He assumed, his assumed spiritual authority and supremacy over the church would make him resemble the Bishop of Rome. And his temporal regency over the re-established empire would make him emperor of Rome. He would be Pontifex Maximus, a title of pagan Roman emperors, having supreme spiritual and temporal authority. Assuming authority without possessing it makes him the false prophet. Does this allude to what our Lord said? And so it says that he has a, the horns of a lamb. That indicates uh, what represents spiritual power. Uh, he's posing as a lamb, though. He's really not, because he talks like a dra the dragon, right? So he appears as a Christian, but his doctrine betrays him. You know, just recently, well, actually, just a couple of days ago, uh, on Sunday, the Sunday within the octave of the Feast of the Ascension, Francis... Uh, had a, a liturgy there at the Casa Santa Marta. And uh, he actually said that being faithful or following the truth does not mean following a system, a system of doctrine or dogma. He says, rather, it means following Christ. So he takes the idea of having dogmas and doctrines and puts it at odds with the idea of following Christ. So the Christ he follows does not really have dogmas or doctrines. <clears throat> so you have a, a choice to make. You're either going to follow the dogmas or the doctrines, or you're going to follow Christ, right? Who is the truth? He embodies the truth, okay? So he's actually created this contradiction. But that contradiction can only be in the mind of Satan. That contradiction can only be in the mind of the of an Antichrist. 
I mean, after all, our Lord says he's sending the Holy Ghost to us precisely to bring to our minds all things whatsoever he has told us and to give us faithful to his doctrines, right? And as though, as though Christ, Francis's Christ, has no doctrines or no system of doctrines or no system of dogmas, you know? But if you read uh, the uh, encyclical of St. Pius X on the modernists, condemning the errors of the modernists, <clears throat> you, you read about the modernist concept of dogma. And how dogma is kind of a necessary evil, but when dogma no longer represents the, the current experience of mankind, of the divine reality, whatever it is, then the dogma has to go because the experience, the faith experience is continually evolving. Dogmas don't evolve. Unless, unless you, have to, you have to make your dogmas changeable. The dogma has to evolve with the faith experience in the modernist mind. And, uh, but I recommend to anybody who would be interested, and I hope some are, to go look to the uh, encyclical Vashendi and look particularly at the, the concept of dogma in the mind of the modernist. And you find that that's exactly what Francis is. He comes out and says so. He might as well just open Vashendi and start reading aloud and say, here, you see this doctrine of the modernists, their belief on dogma? Well, that's exactly what I believe. And proclaim it to, that's what he proclaims to the world. So the Christ that, uh, that Francis uh, is, is proclaiming to the world and that he, promised, that he wants everyone to follow <coughs> is a Christ who is truth but without doctrine. A Christ who is truth but without dogma. That is without unchangeable teachings, right? Uh, <clears throat> is it heresy? Yeah, it is. Totally antithetical to all that the church has ever taught about faith and morals. Um, but Francis has already made, uh, made that very clear to anyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see. Mm -hmm. So in any case, um, if our writer asks, uh, do I see parallels? I do see parallels. But I think that Francis is merely a stepping stone on the way to <clears throat> the actual false prophet who, as Father Kramer says, will be appointed by the Antichrist himself. If, if, if Francis was a step in that direction, how um, how far away do you think that much larger step would be? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting you ask that because I'm just opening the book to this. Um, Father Kramer talks about the Antichrist, and precisely he's he's addressing that question. And he says, um, on page 306 of his book, he says, many speculations have been current about the origin of the Antichrist and the time of his appearance. Satan does not know the time. That's what Father Kramer says. According to the verse, to, according to verse 2, that's of uh, chapter 13, verse 2, and also the foregoing chapter, he will get the permission to choose his man at God's appointed time. And he also here refers to books of the Old Testament from Genesis 
And that's chapter 49, uh, 1, 7. And Deuteronomy, chapter 33, verse 22. And Jeremiah, he says, chapter 8, verse 16. The tradition had arisen that Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. That's interesting. You know why? Because uh, in the book of the Apocalypse, when the tribes are mentioned, the 12,000 from each of the tribes, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned. Doesn't, there's no reference to it whatsoever. Curious, that's Apocalypse chapter 7. And uh, Father Kramer continues, this is the view of Irenaeus, the great father and doctor of the church, right? Uh, of Hippolytus and of Victorinus. The tribe of Dan had apostatized so entirely that after that captivity, it is not enumerated anymore. The tribes have long ago lost their identity. Antichrist will evidently be of Jewish descent, but from what country he will hail must be left to speculation. Personally, he comes up out of the sea of the anti-Christian peoples and nations and tongues. That's what the sea represents, right? And here we're represented, again, we're directed to the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 17, verse 15. The sea in Old Testament prophecy is the Mediterranean Sea, and this would seem to intimate that a country bordering on that sea shall produce him. But again, uh, you know, this is Father Kramer's interpretation. He does give references to various fathers of the church. But you have to remember, though, that uh, they are uh, commenting on the book of the Apocalypse, which is divine revelation, and he is commenting on what they say. You know, so we have certain generations <laughs> removed here. So Father Kramer, again, does not have uh, the character, nor does he claim to have the character of a prophet himself, uh, nor um, is he infallible. You know, he just says it seems that this is so. There are other interpretations possible, too. Okay. All right. Uh, well, another interesting topic, Father, and then the same, referencing the same book, Book of Destiny by Father Kramer, one of our viewers uh, references the description of the mystery Babylon that is to be destroyed in one hour towards the very end of the world. And she says, as a New Yorker reading that, Manhattan comes to life on those pages and even more increasingly, it now perfectly describes the current state of Manhattan. So I thought that might be interesting. Father, I wanted to get your opinion on that. Do you think that the mystery Babylon could possibly be the, uh, the Manhattan? Well, it could possibly be Manhattan. Could. Uh, she says that looking at Manhattan now, you know, it seems to apply even more so. I'd like to know why she says that. She doesn't really explain that, I guess. Is it, is it a lady? Yeah, yes, Father. Okay. So she, she gives one little um, thing, just uh, <laughs> says uh, St. John even describes the shape of Manhattan from the air and the woman with a golden cup in her hand who represents the city. Um, so it seems very precise to her. Okay, the golden cup, is she referring to the Statue of Liberty? I assume so. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought the Statue of Liberty carried a torch. Yes. Uh, but I don't know if she's, she doesn't mention the Statue of Liberty. No, not explicitly. But. Um, so uh, maybe there is some other iconography of New York that, I mean, the idea of the Big Apple with the bike taken out of it, if there is a bike taken out of that, 
uh, is also rather telling. <laughs> they do, you know, and and chosen for a reason. But I'm if you go to the the earliest commentators on this book of sacred scripture. I mean, clearly, this was written toward the very toward the very end of Saint John the Apostle's life. It was actually the second last book of the Bible to be written, the Book of the Apocalypse. The last book of the Bible to be written was Saint John's Gospel, in which he he actually summarize he actually gives an account of uh, well the preaching of the apostles. Much of it had not actually been uh, recorded in the previous three Gospels. And so St. John uh, was inspired by God to give us a full account of our Lord's discourse to his apostles at the Last Supper. And he's the only one that does so. In fact, that account of our Lord's discourse to his apostles at the Last Supper takes up almost one-fourth of his entire Gospel. Um, and it's very important, we, especially now we're reading that in the Sundays after Easter. Um, we read that account of what our Lord told his apostles at the Last Supper from St. John's Gospel. Now, um, the early commentators, fathers of the church, so on, believed, well, some of them believed that the harlot of Babylon was Rome. Some believed it was Rome. The, uh, the account... Uh, talks about, well, as a great city, and uh, it is perched upon seven mountains or seven hills. And Rome is famous for being the city on seven hills. And there are other aspects of the prophecy uh, in the book of the Apocalypse that that would point to Rome. Um, You read the description of this this harlot, and uh, being surrounded by water, essentially, right? She talks about Manhattan. That's interesting, you know, Manhattan. Well, yeah, you could say that would apply there. Uh, Rome is not surrounded by water. However, it does have the Mediterranean and then the Tiber, right? And it's sort of... Um, <clears throat> well, you know, even, even you see that bend in the Tiber. <laughs> it kind of makes you wonder. Uh, that might have something to do with it. But the early fathers, in any case, regarded that Rome as the prime candidate for that. However, there's a strong current of thought that interpret that uh, great harlot to be, to be Jerusalem itself. And fathers of the church thought it was Jerusalem and not Rome. Some did. Because they talked about the harlot who was guilty of uh, blasphemies and... They said infidelity. And um, Rome, pagan Rome, would not be considered guilty of infidelity because it was never, let's say, espoused to God. But the people of Jerusalem were by the covenant. And if you look through the Old Testament, uh, time and time again, the prophets accused the people of Israel and Judea of being guilty of adultery by entering into this kind of well, intercourse, uh, social intercourse with the pagan nations. I mean, uh, even uh, even the the Valley of Kinnom, uh, uh, Gehenna, you know where Gehenna is, an area where there were pagan sacrifices offered and even children offered 
burned to death in Tamalak. It was a very dark, evil place in all the minds of the Jewish people after they returned from uh, exile and even going into the time of our Lord, it was considered, well, our Lord used Gehenna, right? The area of Hinnom as an example of a forlorn, lost, hellish place. You know? So they say, uh, some of the fathers say it can't be uh, Rome because Rome <clears throat> was not uh, anyway, espoused to God, um, and then and then apostatized and betrayed God. Quite the contrary, that would apply, they say, to Jerusalem, that had crucified the Savior and had murdered the prophets who foretold his coming. And uh, that's another prophecy about the murdering of the saints, you know, the, the prophets of old. So uh, what is the answer? Well, I don't know. Um, could it be that what Rome represented, what Jerusalem came to represent, and its destruction in the year 70 AD and the dispersal of its people, those who survived, and the taking captive of thousands and thousands of them, actually marched back to Rome to begin construction of the Colosseum? And, um, I mean... Could that also be uh, the harlot of Babylon? And in our own day, could it be New York? And the answer is it could be. There are even those who suggest, by the way, that this harlot is the European Union. Because you look at the symbol of the European Union, and it is this woman riding a beast. Is she holding a golden cup? I don't recall. But there is that representation. She is an official representation of the European Union. So could the prophecy actually refer to all of these? Well, actually, yes, it could. Yes, it could. Like, uh, for example, we have the image of the woman giving birth in the Apocalypse chapter 12. And... Again, the imagery in the writings of the fathers refers to the church and to our Blessed Mother. So it is possible that the evil imagery of the harlot harlot of Babylon, or the whore of Babylon, uh, could refer to multiple cities, which are sort of, uh, in a sense, reincarnations of each other's evil, you know, from different points of view. So I don't know that anybody could say, well, it certainly is not Manhattan. But uh, one could not, as far as I know, say with absolute certitude that it is. Could you say it applies? Oh, yes, definitely. It's blasphemies and, and so many other things certainly apply. Wow. Uh, okay, well, Father, one other question concerning this book of destiny um one of our viewers asked uh in reading through the book it seems that father kramer does not mention much about the triumph of the immaculate heart of mary and it's such a momentous topic we, we've talked about it a lot on on the show mm-hmm. why um in a book specifically dedicated to the end times does father kramer not mention um i don't know if he even mentions it at all at least explicitly um the triumph of the immaculate heart of mary why would he not talk about that mm-hmm. well i don't know I guess you'd have to ask him. (laughs) 
And someday, maybe we'll, I'll get the opportunity. Hopefully. Hopefully, you know, he's in heaven. Um, but in any case, um, you know, he speaks about chapter 12 of the book of the Apocalypse. And he, he does talk at some length about the woman who is delivering the child. She's clothed with the sun. She's crowned with 12 stars. She's actually clothed in light. What he has to say is worth, worth reading. In fact, uh, if you don't mind, I'll yeah. read a little bit about that. And uh, he doesn't explicitly mention the triumph of the Immaculate of Mary. But I think he, what he says could lead us to that and make us realize uh, that it's, it's not that he doesn't speak about the Immaculate Heart of Mary because there's nothing in the Apocalypse about that. It's not that he overlooks the triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart because the Apocalypse doesn't mention it, or there's no foundation in it. Because I think when we look at that chapter 12, there is a foundation for seeing the triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. Uh, it's just not explicit. It's quite implicit. You know? um, and this is what Father Kramer says. This is on page 276. He says, The sign that shall appear to announce the arrival of the direst judgments for the Church and the world is, quote, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. End of quote. This is the first, quote, woman to appear in the revelations. She dwells in light, and her very raiment is light, and is thus the antithesis of the powers of darkness whose machinations are dark. She stands in a mass of light which clothes her entirely and upon an orb of lesser light. Which is very interesting, you know, because when Our Lady appeared at Fatima, there was the orb of light that came. Remember, remember the, uh, the Protestant divines who would have that mean that, that Our Lady was like a space, that this was a space alien that was coming down, this orb of light? Well, if actually uh, we see this in the book of Apocalypse. Not, she's standing on a, like a, a globe of light. And her head is encircled by a halo of smaller orbs. She is crowned with stars, right, of light. She thus somewhat resembles, somewhat resembles Christ. Uh, and he refers here to chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, and God, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. But this resemblance is only a resemblance. He says, yet the light is not her own light. It does not emanate from her person as it does from Christ and God, but it is given to her for raiment and ornament. These orbs of light are of heavenly origin, tokens of divine endowments. She has received light as her dowry, and on that account the prince of darkness persecutes her. This woman is a contrast to the scarlet woman, of chapter 17, verse 4, who could be very well that harlot of Babylon, right? The woman of chapter 12 is not the Blessed Virgin Mary, as he says that, just categorically. The woman of chapter 12 is not the Blessed Virgin Mary. But then he goes on, 
Curiously enough, and he says, the ancient interpreters, beginning with Hippolytus and Methodius, understood this to be a figure of the church. Since Hippolytus was a disciple of Irenaeus, who had associated with Polycarp, a friend and companion of St. John, his exposition should have greater authority than that of later fathers who identified the woman with the Blessed Virgin. Now that's kind of an interesting statement on his part, and it's something of an admission. He does say that the later fathers of the church identified the woman as the Blessed Virgin. He says that. He just says that, well, Hippolytus was a disciple of Irenaeus, and Irenaeus was associated with Polycarp, and Polycarp was a friend and companion of St. John, so, you know, the testimony of, of Hippolytus should override the rest. But is that necessarily true? I mean... I don't think so. He does admit the later fathers identify the woman with the Blessed Mother. And the point is that they could very well both be right, right? Why should there be any contradiction between the two? According to the ancient fathers, the human nature or character of the church is here delineated, while in chapters 4 and 5, her divine nature and prerogatives were depicted. Heaven in the Apocalypse is the church as to her divine origin, constitution, endowments, and prerogatives. In this heaven, the church now appears in her human character. The human nature of the church is clothed with divine authority because the priesthood is endowed with the light and power of Christ. The twelve stars represent the twelve apostles, or they may be God's mystical number of symbolizing the Christian nations, that as a contrast to the ten-crowned horns of the beast— shall be the glory of the church when the days of Antichrist approach. If these stars represent the twelve apostles, they allude to Daniel, declaring that those who teach many unto justice shall shine as the stars. That's Saint, the prophet Daniel, book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3. They would thus aptly typify the exposition and exemplification of the divine truth by the apostles enlightening the mind of the church. The moon under her feet has ever been understood to symbolize the unchanging and unchangeable character of the church. Though consisting of frail human beings, she is not changeable like they, or like the phenomena of nature. The moon beneath her feet fitly re represents her power to make laws of discipline, accommodating them to changing conditions in human society. Why? Well, the moon is constantly changing its phases. It's coming in and out of phases all the time. It represents the changeable, mutable world. And Our Lady having the moon under her feet represents a dominance over that, you know, something that is fixed and unchanging. And this power and right is also of divine origin because it, it originates in heaven, which is eternal, right? So here you have kind of an interesting passage, I think, about uh, this question of the woman. I personally think that Our Lady's triumph of her Immaculate Heart could well be implicitly stated in here. Uh, Father Kramer doesn't see it that way, but that's because he sees we have to make the choice between it being either the Church or the Blessed Mother. The Fathers of the Church evidently didn't see that dichotomy. Mm -hmm that, you know, one was in any way uh, inimical to the other. So, um, uh, you know, again, one would have to ask Father Kramer um, 
uh, why he didn't mention this. I mean, Our Lady talked about the triumph of her Immaculate Heart at Fatima and revealed this to the children, but she also enjoined them to silence, and it wasn't to be revealed right away, right? In fact, um, even the third secret was not even supposed to be revealed until 1960, or could have been, I guess, actually, at the discretion of Pope Pius XII, but it wasn't Pius XII that died. It had been taken out of the hands of the bishop of the area, and it had been uh, t taken back to the Vatican where John Twenty-Third saw it in 1960, right? It wasn't revealed. So um, I don't know what Father Kramer even knew about the idea of the prophecy of the uh, triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. Um, that would be kind of interesting to know mm -hmm. what he even knew about that. But um, it, there are prophecies about, about it. Was Father Kramer aware of it? I don't know. But in any case, it's true. He doesn't seem to mention it in the Book of Destiny. Perhaps the reason uh, is the reason I gave that he saw having to make a choice between chapter 12 of the book of the Apocalypse referring to the church or referring to Our Lady, and perhaps he excluded Our Lady, uh, I think erroneously so. Okay. Um, but there are prophecies, I mean, Yves Dupont mentions these prophecies, uh, right? about Our Lady's, uh, the triumph of her Immaculate Heart, and speaks of them. Mm -hmm. yes. you, you might even have a question about that, actually, <laughs> now that I think of it. Yes, Father, yes, absolutely. We, we referenced the book uh, several several weeks ago, I believe. Um, and one of our viewers was a bit concerned after uh, viewing that program, Father, because he said it, it seemed that you almost uh, adopted a dismissive tone towards the book and uh, eat upon his writings and uh, some of the prophecies that he referenced there. And, Sphere says that the impression was given during that program that the book was no more credible than the the, um, the the various heretical Protestant musings regarding the end times. He says the Dupont material also provides a uniquely Catholic perspective on a subject that has been largely dominated by heretical Protestant end time scenarios and popular books and movies. Um, he references uh, also how he talked about uh, Venerable Holshauser in the book. Uh, Bartholomew Holshauser. He says he may not be as well known as other Catholic mystics, such as Anne Catholic Emmerich, Anne Catherine Emmerich. Um, but they all—all all of these Catholic mystics appear to be referring to a great restoration after a period of escalating chastisements that culminate in the three days of darkness. So, Father, everything in the book is is very Catholic. He says, um, perfectly in line with other Catholic uh, thinkers and other um, Catholic prophecies. So, Father, why did you uh, seem to be a bit dismissive towards the uh, towards the book and towards Eve Dupont's mm -hmm. writings? Well, I didn't mean to be dismissive. If I seemed to be dismissive, that wasn't my intent. Um, I, I tend to be rather wary of private revelations and prophecies uh, these days because of all of these this just explosion of claims that people make. You know, they've had revelations of this and, you know, revelations of that, you know, and it seems like a lot of the traditional Catholic people are very much attuned to this. And uh, early, in the early days, certainly uh, after Vatican II and with the changes in the church, I, I heard a great deal about people running after this alleged vision here and running, running after that alleged, alleged vision here. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the Bayside, New York, you know, was very well known where People were going to Bayside and coming back, claiming their rosaries turned to gold. 
and there we had Veronica Lucan saying that she saw the symbol of the Blessed Trinity in the sky uh, in a vision. She was asked to describe it, and, and she said, well, it looks like the Ballantine beer symbol. This does not seem to me have the character of some kind of a heavenly vision, frankly. Um, so, anyway, there, there were things going on like that. Things that, in my estimation, were, were manifestly false and, and uh, meant to mislead people and to uh, ultimately, ultimately um, uh, take people off the track of what they should be doing, right? Uh, this is how I saw it. But I don't mean to dis dismiss uh, Yves Dupont's work this way. I do not consider his uh, work in Catholic Prophecy right, and uh, talk about the, the coming chastisement. I would not put his um, book in that category, nor would I put uh, the revelations, the private revelations that he, that he accounts or recounts in his book in that category. I think they are to be taken seriously. Uh, they are not pri public revelation. They're not, therefore, infallibly correct. We know that going in. And, uh, but not only that, but in Yves Dupont's book, uh, we have not divine um, public revelation as we have in sacred scripture. We don't have sacred tradition, necessarily. Uh, certainly, we have um, mystics who are uh, prophesying the future under divine influence, allegedly, and uh, we have reason to believe that they are they're credible in the sense that the holiness of their lives is something that the church itself has recognized, right? And uh, the church hasn't necessarily come out and pronounced on each and every one of them saying, yes, these are worthy of belief. But the church has accepted these with a certain amount of uh, interest and uh, has attributed to them some weight, you know. Um, and so I think they are worthy of being taken very seriously. Um, but again, one has to be cautious. I, I, I guess I, I don't mean to be dismissive, but I, I just mean to be cautious in the sense that uh, you you have, for example, with Father Kramer here. Okay, you have him commenting, and for his commentary, drawing on the works of the fathers of the church. Now they definitely carry a certain weight. The church has explicitly, officially pronounced on the authority of the fathers of the church. And they themselves are commenting on divine revelation, public revelation in sacred scripture. So that has a certain weight. In the book by Yves Dupont, uh, you have a certain weight there, I believe. But there you have often his own commentary on the, the statements of mystics in private revelation, not public revelation. So they're not the fathers of the church. That doesn't mean we just dismiss that, okay? Um, but we have to be careful there, not only about, you know, a consistency with the faith and consistency with each other, but we also have to be concerned about an individual's private interpretation of their private revelations. That being said, and that's not being dismissive, uh, that being said, I do 
think that one should read that book. And I would recommend it to our traditional Catholic people to read the book Catholic Prophecy and the coming chastisement uh, for, for all of our traditional Catholics. I think they should be aware of it. They should be aware of these prophecies. Um, if, I, if I seemed to be dismissive of Yves Dupont's work here, it might be because um, I was puzzling, as I recall, I'm trying to remember, <laughs> I was puzzling over the timeline and how this all fit together. And uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I gather from what Yves Dupont has written and what he has uh, not only himself commented on, but what he's reported of the words of the mystics and their prophecies, is that there will be a great falling away, as it were, and a great rebellion against God. The world will become engulfed in wickedness. There will then come a great chastisement, which may well include the three days of darkness. And the result of that will be that the vast majority of the enemies of Christ will be, will be swept from the earth, that they will die, right? Kind of like the anti-rapture, the exactly opposite, right? That the good will remain, that the evil will be, will be decimated, and that the result of that great chastisement will be a purification of the world, that the church will be restored, even surpass her former glories on earth, that the communism during, during this evil time will take over the world, and then will be beaten back by the great monarch. And uh, then the great chastisement and the three days of darkness will complete that rout of the evil. There will then come a time of peace that will be the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And that all of that will happen before the coming of the Antichrist. That's my interpretation of Yves Dupont's writings and what he gleans from the writings of the mystics. And I'm trying to reconcile that with, for example, what the theosophists are talking about predicting the coming of their world teacher, Lord Maitreya, to teach mankind that it is God. But who will that be but the Antichrist? And they're saying that he's imminent. And, you know, you might say, well, why do we believe them? Well, uh, I mean, all of the, the so-called world religions are predicting the arrival of some great world figure that's going to unite mankind. And it's going to be the Antichrist. We know from the description who this is supposed to be. So there's this great anticipation that he's about to come into the world. But this means nothing to me were it not for the fact that St. Pius X himself, in a Supremius first encyclical, talked about the very fact that there were developments in the world that would give one reason to believe that the Antichrist was here or soon to come. So I'm asking myself, okay, how do I reconcile that in my mind, these things, with the uh, words of the mystics, and I'm, I'm having trouble figuring out how to do that. I, I, I haven't really figured out how to reconcile these two different currents of thought. Um, but, uh, you know, 
As far as Yves Dupont's interpretation of the writings of the mystics, again, I think it's something that is definitely worth reading and, and worth taking into consideration. Because the triumph of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart has to come sometime. And one doesn't expect it to come after the vanquishing of the Antichrist. The vanquishing of the Antichrist, it would seem, uh, you know, will be done by our Lord returning in glory to judge. You know, there are those who say that the judgment will follow that. The vanquishing of the Antichrist. So again, you know, you have the timeline that's obscure to us. Now that's not, that shouldn't be surprising. Why? Well, when the apostles asked our Lord, is this the time for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel? And our Lord said, well, these are the things that the Father has kept in reserve for himself. It's not for you to know. So, if the timeline is a little obscure to us, we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, our Lord has made it very clear that this information is privileged information, and even reserved to the fathers. So, I mean, why should we have a greater knowledge now than the apostles did then? Talking with our Lord directly and asking him personally about the time for these things to happen. So, um, you know, our Lord foretold things, but he didn't give them the timeline. And there's another example, by the way, too, of our Lord saying one thing and referring to more than one thing. Right? He talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and talked about the end of the world in the same breath. Right? So two separate things. Again, getting back to why couldn't Apocalypse 12 refer to the church and to Our Lady at the same time. But in any case, that's uh, getting... So I, I just want our reader... And others, our listeners, to know I'm not in any way putting down uh, the work of Yves Dupont. Quite the contrary, I do recommend that we read it and really ponder it. Uh, Our Lord told us in the Gospel of last Sunday that he told these things so that when they came to pass, we would recognize them. We would know them. And he didn't say, I tell you these things so you can know when they're coming. He said, rather, I'm telling you this now so that, and he said this twice in the gospel. He repeated that same thought. I'm telling you this in advance so that when it happens, you may recognize it. You may know what it is. Not so that you can sit down and, and you know, uh, mark your calendar, you know, in advance for the event. And our Lord's purpose is very clear that uh, so that when we see what he told us is coming, when it actually happens, rather than it shaking our faith, rather than it weakening our faith, rather than it causing us to doubt him, it should confirm our faith. And uh, so that's why the events that are happening right now in our country, in the world, and yes, in the church, or to the church, um, rather than weaken our faith, this this should actually confirm our faith, because this has all been forecast. Again, our Lord didn't give us, uh, you know, dates and times to synchronize our watches for these things. But he did say, when they happen, you'll know. You'll know, because I told you. And uh, so we know. We know what's happening. Um, As far as the timeline of the future, well, God has not revealed it to me as for sight. And I don't know that he's told it to you either. If he has, you're being very silent about it. (laughs) But uh, I do say that the, um, the, the work of Yves Dupont is worth reading and uh, taking seriously. Okay. And if anybody can, can help me kind of figure out 
uh, a timeline because I, I see what appear to be to be certain well, it can't appear to be certain contradictions, but the contradiction can't really be in God's timeline. The contradiction is just apparent in my own mind, and perhaps, well, I know there are better minds than mine out there, better souls than mine, and perhaps someone out there has a, a real solution to this. I'd like to know what it is. Okay. Well, Father, I think we can end with that. We uh, got through a lot and uh, covered a lot of ground. Well, this is all about uh, end times prophecy and so yeah, on, right? Yeah. Surely there were other things that were asked, right? <laughs> there are lots. There must be something on a moral. You always ask me at the end. Is there something encouraging you can say? Well, Father, <laughs> is there some question that some people ask? You? Oh, there are there are many uh, questions, Father. Um, there was one about uh, taking care of the elderly. Is yes, think. Father. Yes, yes. We did not get into that tonight, but we did have. Uh, Maybe we should though. All right. Let's do it. Right. You know why? Well, because of what happened in New York with the the elderly being shipped off to die and yeah. to carry death with them into the nursing homes, right? Yeah. And the treatment of the elderly today. I mean, let's face it, uh, euthanasia of the, the elderly, the infirm, that's a big part of its prophecy too, right? The murder of the elderly. I mean, let's face it, when you talk about the, the, the children in the womb and the mass murder of these children by abortion, I mean, it, it, it finds its counterpart in the mass murder of the elderly who are being done to death in our hospitals and our nursing homes. And we have testimony of those who work there who've said that, it, yes, they are being euthanized quietly, but it's happening day by day. All of them? No. But those who are abandoned are very vulnerable and have no one to advocate for them. And there's more than one person caring for them who might voice the idea, well, I wouldn't want to live like that. And this person shouldn't have to either. You know? You hear that a lot. You hear that a lot. <clears throat> yeah. And um, I think of Terry Schiavo and her condition in, as a young woman. And so when you get the elderly there who don't have any friends or relatives to, who are able to get to see them during this COVID-19 thing, and just incredibly cruel, vicious, right? How these people are isolated unto death. And so I do think the question actually does pertain to what we're talking about as a manifestation of the times we live in. How should we treat our elderly? Well, what does our Lord say? Uh, he starts out, God starts out by telling us, honor your father and your mother, right? And he doesn't just say, don't be mean to them, don't be disrespectful to them. He goes far beyond that. He says, honor them honor them. And he doesn't say honor them when you're a child. He says honor them. As long as they are your mother and your father, honor them. In the Old Testament already, there are very severe punishments for children who fail to honor their parents. And um, even to the point where if a child was to strike a father and mother, he's guilty of a capital crime and should be put to death. I mean, that's so serious, is it? Very grave matter. We, we don't do that now, of course. But in the Old Testament, it was considered to be such a, horror, a heinous crime to do that. Um, and even naturally speaking, I mean, there, there were pagan cultures that had the natural virtue of piety, where the young honored their, 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 their older. And um, even those themselves who had 
grown to old age, honored their elders. They honored the, the generation before them, always. They would never dream of dishonoring them, being disrespectful to them. And there are many pagan cultures who even honored the dead who'd gone beyond them, as though their generation had come into the world and gone out of the world, but they still saw a need out of natural piety to honor them. And uh, this is a very naturally good thing following the natural law. And is a kind of worldly, natural reflection, on a much lower level, of course, of the idea of honoring the saints in heaven, you know? And kind of a communion of saints, that those who go leave this world have souls. They still exist. They have spirits, you know? Uh, they're not just um, uh, rotting in the tomb, their bodies disintegrating, uh, and there's nothing left of them. No, they had a very, very strong sense of the immortality of what we know as a soul, of human life, surviving beyond death, and the need to even respect that, their past relatives. So, you know, you see in this a kind of glimpse of God's plan with regard to the way we regard our own parents and the honor that we, are, that we owe them. And notice, by the way, there are no footnotes to that. There's no fine print to that. Honor thy father and thy mother, asterisk. Check the bottom. If they deserve it, right? If they are honorable, right? If they are respectable. Right? If they're not, then you don't have to. You're off the hook. And Lord, there's no footnote there. It's required of us. And our Lord says, if we do this, we will be blessed upon the earth. We will have a blessed life. Statement very clear, if we don't, we're not pleasing God. We're not, we're not pleasing God. Why? Because no matter the character or lack of it, we may, we may, we may see uh, in any parents, uh, nonetheless, they gave us life, and to that extent, we are committed to their care. Now, they may not take that responsibility very seriously in every case. We know plenty of parents now, even those who murder their own children, right? Uh, in abortion. Uh, we know many, many parents who do not love as parents or live as parents and take care of nurturing the life that they give. But the fact is that they gave that life. And there's a certain bond that we have toward them, a bond of piety. And uh, God considers that to be a part of the whole approach or attitude we have toward him, that we have toward him. And uh, he has ordered parents to take care of their children. There's no doubt about it. And there are obligations of parents to the child. It's not as though God has given parents a pass. That they have nothing to do. All the honor comes from one, one way. That's clear. That's clear. Okay. But the fact is that a parent's failure does not absolve, or a, what a child perceives as a parent's failure, does not absolve the child of the obligation, the God-given obligation, to love his parents to pray for his parents and do whatever he can to help them.
in this life and ultimately for the salvation of their souls. So that's how we should be regarding our parents. One might say, well, my father, you know, failed in this way and failed in that way. And let's face it, I mean, there's some horrific stories about about parental failures, right? But maybe God would say, that's true. I know that better than you do. I carried the cross for your father. You didn't, right? I died on the cross for your mother. You didn't. But I want you to still care enough about them that you at least would do for them what they might not be willing to do for you. And I want you to care about them to make the sacrifices necessary to save their souls. And that's your solemn obligation now. Yeah. Yet it might be precisely the graces obtained by this child or that child for a wayward parent. Just as we say, well, the, the sacrifices made by a, wayward, by a faithful parent are necessary for the salvation of a wayward child. Yeah, why not see the situation reversed? In the Bible, you find it both ways. You find great parents and really wasteful kids, right? I mean, look, our Lord even told the parable of the prodigal son, right? Very dutiful father and this wretch of a son, right, who betrayed him, stabbed him in the back, right? But, I mean, look at the kind of father that Saul was. He wanted to murder his son, Jonathan's best friend, King David. And yet, Jonathan was a very good man. The very good son of a pretty wicked father. And you find uh, Heli, the high priest, was a very good father. And his two sons were rotten to the core. Ophni and Phineas, right? And he let them run wild. And that was his fault. But he was very faithful. One great fault, though. He tried. He failed. <laughs> uh, in the Bible, we find good parents, bad kids. We find bad parents, good kids. Uh, we find King David, a man after God's own heart. And then he, he brought into the world Solomon, who ended a reprobate. So, who is to say that with God... It isn't come down, it never comes down to the, let's say, the reverse of a good parent praying and sacrificing for a wayward child that the child be saved. But then the, chair, the parent's salvation may depend upon the fidelity of a child who loves his parents enough to make the sacrifices necessary. And what kind of a reward in heaven would there be for that, for that child who is so faithful? You know? So, in other words, um, we owe to our parents what they need to live well in this world. Sometimes it's impossible. You can't raise your parents, right? They're not your children. You don't have that relationship. You don't have that control. But the fact is to do for them what you, what you can do for their good, both in this world and in the next. There's a, there's a solemn obligation to do that. So, anyway, I'll give you a chance to... Uh, <laughs> To close here. No, that's great, Father. Thank you. Uh, thank you for going through that. I uh, appreciate it, and I know our viewers do as well. So thanks for everything, Father. Well, I appreciate their patience. Yes, uh, you know. absolutely. God bless you all. Yep, you too. Thanks to all, all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.